This podcast is brought to you by Antelope Audio. Considered among the leaders in professional sound quality, Antelope is responsible for the Synergy Core line of audio interfaces, giving creators access to the finest real-time analog modeled effects. Learn more at antelopeaudio.com. Hey, it's Larry Crane. Welcome to the Tape Op Podcast. For fine like Mario, some man break down bricks, some man can stand through don't take but it's Ross window just make it. Italian engineer and mixer Ricardo Damien has had a hand in the music of a staggering list of artists. Bruno Mars, Lady Gaga, Miley Cyrus, Sampha, Lily Allen, Yeba, Ezra Collective, Alicia Keys. Drake, and the list goes on. From interning in a small town in Italy to cutting his teeth in London's more prestigious studios and being Mark Ronson's main engineer, he has learned from mentors and carved a path and created a sound that is decidedly his own. Jeff Stanfield caught up with Ricky earlier this year to discuss his early days, the importance of being prepared, and making sure technology never gets in the way. Enjoy. I do want to talk about um, some of the records you've been making, um, you know, more recently. But I, I always love to ask about your early days in audio and and uh, how you kind of got your start in um, into the audio and record making world in uh, Italy. Yeah, definitely. So um, I, I started playing when I was about six, and it's funny because my my family is not even musical at all. Like they don't really listen to that much music. At least they didn't at the time. But I started playing guitar because my mom sort of like suggested me to take it on as an activity. And I think it was like a activity as a kid, you know, just until I was about 12 years old, which is about the time that I discovered classic rock, especially Brit rock. And I feel like my my music teacher at the time gave me a Queen uh, Greatest Hits CD. I know it sounds really cliche and sort of like corny, but it's I think the first time I listened to songs like, you know, Bohemian Rhapsody or... Uh, you know, all the, all those beautiful songs that were in, uh, you know, in the kind of greatest hits thing. It just opened up a world to me. And I was like, I actually play guitar, but I never thought of guitar as like electric guitar. And, you know, I was playing like jazz and acoustic stuff, but not really thinking about it. And so I think from that era onwards, I just wanted to do music more than anything else. Um, and then I think the first time I actually thought about recording music was when I was 15, when I got into a tiny like basement which was like a little home studio in town. I come from a very small town in Italy called Treviso, which is uh, near Venice. It's like 20 minutes inland. And I think I, w- I had like a, uh, this is funny, I had like a, a Pink Floyd tribute band at the time and we were playing The Wall. Uh, like we were doing like big charity events and stuff. I say big, but I mean like probably 500 people. Um, but we were we had this crazy ambition of going into the studio and recording our own version of The Wall. Like that was an easy thing, you know? And so I remember walking into the studio age age 14 probably. And, you know, there wasn't much. There was like a bunch of mics, a bunch of pre's, nothing, nothing crazy, no vintage gear or anything like that. But I remember actually reflecting on the art of recording for the first time. I had never for some reason thought about how music gets, gets ca- captured and how do you actually, you know, how much work there is behind the glass to make records and make things sound amazing. And 
and sort of like influence generation. So I think from that day onwards, I was converted because I had a little bit of a geeky past in terms of like guitar pedals and amps and that kind of thing. But then as soon as I understood the whole world about, you know, gear and like experimenting with with equipment, that was it. I was hooked. Yeah, I just started um, working at that studio. I asked, I said, can I be here? I don't care what, it, what, what I do. I just want to be here. And so we were like making demos for all the bands in town and stuff like that, which was super fun. You know, it's like, it's the time where you're really making the big mistakes in engineering, but you have no responsibilities because you're just there helping out, but you're figuring shit out at the same time. And then I, um, uh, through my guitar teacher at the time, I started uh, assisting at the bigger studio in town, which is, it's called Magister Recording Area, um, which is like, it's a private studio, but it's like a very big facility, like big live rooms. And there's a f- like a huge analog desk. It's a Soundcraft desk. They had they had tape. They had a lot of mics, a lot of Neumann mics. So it was just the best place to be for me because I, the owner of the studio, which is like my first mentor, his name is Andrea, was the best thing that could happen to me because he was, you know, the kindest human being, but also so skilled and so uh, he actually studied at Full Sail in, in Florida and, and he had so much knowledge, so much skill. So I learned so much from him at a very young age when I was like 15 and 16. I was like running, you know, tape machines and stuff. So I, that was so lucky for me to, you know, end up in a situation like that. And, uh, you know, obviously loving it more and more. I was still in high school at the time. But as soon as I had a moment, I was in the studio and and pretty much figured out that that's what I wanted to do in my in my life. So... Uh, at age 19, I moved to London to to study audio engineering, and uh, and pretty much never made it back. Not only did you have the gear, but you know you you were taught a process and you were taught a methodology to recording that I think is is missing um, from people that are just starting out, um, you know, with a two channel interface and in their and their laptop. Definitely, I think that's you. You're touching again an amazing point for me because I all of a sudden, more and more, I'm realizing that the art of recording is getting lost in a way. I'm not, I'm not trying to sound very negative or like, you know, um, weird about it. But I think all those records that we love from back in the day had something in common. It wasn't just about, you know, as you said, the gear. The gear is worth nothing if, if you don't see how it's being used. You know, like a microphone is just there. It's a beautiful piece of furniture if it looks good. But then until you see somebody using it in a way that you could never think about, it doesn't acquire the meaning and the and the powerfulness that it, that it would have, and I really picked on that, picked up on that. I think early on because of the people that, yeah, as you said, you know, the people that I had the privilege to assist and work with, and and I think you know, I mean, I don't consider myself of the old generation. I'm still 27 years old, but I feel like I learned audio engineering the old way because I saw these guys you know, do it like with tape and with analog and just spending the time moving mics and spending the time experimenting with sound, like all the things that I feel like nowadays you don't really do anymore because there's so much, oh yeah, we can fix it in the box or so we can decide it later. But then, you know, going back to those Queen records, even before the Beatles records, the Pink Floyd, all the stuff that I grew up with, they were committing at any point in the recording process and they had only you know they had limitations they had all these things and i was always fascinated about this uh, process and i think it's getting lost a little bit for all the right and wrong reasons you know i'm not um you know i'm sure there's great benefits of the new technology and everything but there's something about the magic of doing it that way that i think it's getting lost and needs to be preserved 
Um, I'm sure you agree. Yeah, I do. And, you know, it's like passing down traditions and the value of having, you know, being a, you know, a T-boy at at Abbey Road and watching and then having the opportunity to be a runner or, or to be sitting on the session as a tape op or then becoming, you know, whatever the, the lineage was, it's just invaluable. A hundred percent. And I think, you know, I think, I mean, uh, but then my case was different because I feel like right after school, I started engineering straight away at age 21. So I kind of skipped those phases, like the assisting in a way, the running and the assisting phase in in the UK. So in the UK, I, I came to study and I started basically engineering straight away for Mark Ronson. That was my first like proper job. I had been do- doing like odd bits, but I feel like part of me wishes that I didn't, that it didn't, that it wasn't so fast. Part of me wished that I could actually go through, yeah, a little bit of more mentorship. You know what I mean? Because I feel like the, it's, it's just beautiful. It's just, to me, it's just, I, I'm today, you know, obviously every day I try and learn something new. And I think the day that we think that we don't need to learn anything anymore, we're dead in terms of music and in terms of engineering. Learned. It's about community too. I mean, that's how you build community. That's how you gain clients. It's how you, um, you know, I mean, people are so isolated and then you add COVID on top of that and you got, you yeah, know, exactly. a whole a whole year and a half worth of people that are learning to record and make music. I mean, it's great. Like, I love it. And people are creative and they're always going to be. But there yeah. is a little bit of that that gets lost. So tell me a little bit about, so you made the choice to go actually learn recording formally at a school. So uh, yeah. tell me about that and then how you ended up meeting Mark Ronson. I mean, obviously, the uh, the formality of it comes from, you know, I, I mean, obviously, you, you always want to get the piece of paper if you can, whatever field you're trying to, you know, um, to choose for your career. And I think, obviously, considering the, the Italian music scene is, I wasn't really a fan of the music, to be honest, but also, you know, being a, a country where you really do listen a lot of native language music more than international, and myself always being attracted by international music, especially American and British uh, it made sense for me to just leave. And and specifically, I did choose London because that's exactly where the music I loved the most at the time was made and had been made. You know, we, we go back to those references like the Beatles, Queen. I mean, it was a no-brainer for me. I really wanted to be in the town uh, in, where, where that music was made. And, you know, in a way, like, breathe that air, breathe the same air that those musicians and producers and engineers that I admire so much um, have have been in for all those years. And I and I really developed on that. I think that idea of geography and music for me uh, became even stronger when I started, you know, working in the, in the US, like in LA and in New York. I really think there is a strong connection between geography and music. And it's beautiful uh, because you know that certain records, you know, if you take like a Pink Floyd record and a Tom Petty record, there's a reason why Dark Side of the Moon was made in the UK. There's a reason why you know, a Tom Petty record was made in LA. There's no, you could not have gotten the same thing if you swapped the cities. And I was very fascinated about that. So I think I chose London because A, was a little easier for me to get. It was still in Europe at the time. Now, clearly it's not anymore, uh, but it was a little easier for me. And uh, and also I loved it. And so I moved here when I was 19 and started um, attending the school called SAE, which is on, it's on pretty pretty famous school in terms of like it's, it's there's one in every every major city if I, if I remember correctly and and you know for me it was a big deal because obviously you know I don't come from a very particularly wealthy family and 
Um, it was a massive sacrifice to even, you know, the ex school here in the UK, especially schools of engineering are really, really expensive. I mean, the US, it's even worse, to be honest. So um, here is kind of a middle ground. But, you know, for me, it was such a big sacrifice for me, my parents. And I worked all, basically the two summers before moving here, I worked all summers and made records even for, you know, for pennies, but at least I could put something uh, towards the budget. And then when I moved here, I was like, yeah, okay, cool. I'm here. So the only thing I want to do here now, now is make music and be a school. So I used to like live at school pretty much. Uh, we had great facilities. We had you know, vintage desks, big SSLs, knees and, and all that, that I had never had the chance to even you know, touch before. And I was all of a sudden in an environment where I could make my mistakes and learn the proper way, you know, without massive consequences. And so it was amazing for me. And um, the other, you know, the other thing I realized is I have to be the best at this because it was such a sacrifice for me, my parents, I mean, for my parents more than anything to, to get me into the school that I really want to be the best. Um, not in any pretentious way, just I'd wanted to show everybody that matter in the school that I, I was there motivated. I had passion. I just wanted to get something out of it. And so I think, you know, every, every now and then, uh, uh, I would try and, you know, talk to the, the teachers and talk to the supervisors and make sure that I, you know, I, I, I felt present that it was like, is there anything I can do? Is there any assisting position? You know, is there anything I can help with after lessons? Like, just keep me posted because I'm eager. I just, there's nothing else I want to do in life. And I think um, what happened is my, I, I wanna, I'm going to call him my second mentor in my life, uh, which was one of my teachers, Mr. Carlos Lelis, uh, amazing teacher. Um, he was the head of the audio department at the time. And I think while I was finishing my dissertation, um, Mark's, Mark Ronson's team was con contacting a lot of universities to try and find like a young engineer because uh, he had just opened a studio in London. And I think when SAE got the call, Carlos was the one that basically phoned me up and said, look, I have this opportunity. I think you're the right fit. Uh, I would like to you know, put you up for an interview. And I mean, the rest is, is history. Uh, it, it all happened very quickly, I think. I was still writing my dissertation, so my lectures had finished, but I was still writing my thesis. And he had just opened the studio at Tileyard, which is a studio complex here in London. And so I went in for an interview, and obviously he was looking for somebody, you know, young and sort of like up and coming, but at the same time, somebody that had good skills of analog and especially tape, because Mark, uh, you know, was has always used a lot of tape uh, in his in his process. And so that happened to be me, you know, and and I pretty much got the job like a couple of days after, because I was pretty much the only kid at that age that could use tape, which is kind of sad to say, to be honest, um, because it's not really taught at schools anymore. Nobody can afford to have working machines and tape and all that. And I think that goes back to my, I guess, my opening. It is getting lost sort of vibe. But I think that was the, that was the, you know, one of the reasons why I got the job is because I was the only kid that knew how to do it, which is weird, you know? You mentioned something and you've said it twice now. Um, you seem, you've said that, you know, without having, you can make mistakes without having massive consequences. To me, that says just how seriously you take the job when you're doing it for somebody that's paying you to do a job. <laughs> oh, definitely. 100%. 100%. Also, because I feel like, I mean, there's, there's so much expectation now with, with, I mean, I, I guess I wasn't alive at the time, but I've always heard stories of people going into studios for months, you know, like a band would go into a studio and spend the whole first week just getting sounds. That doesn't happen anymore, at least not 
in 99.9% of the cases. You know, it's it's a luxury to be able to just go into the studio to get sound. So I think like what has really changed and the, the thing that will frustrate every engineer is that people have the expectation to walk into a studio and let's record, let's do it, you know? From whatever background, from whatever, you know, level of the music industry. And I think our job has definitely transformed as engineers has transformed throughout the years for many reasons in terms of technology and process and you know all the things that we do and we don't do anymore but i think one major component that has changed is expectations versus preparation you know like for us now it's about we need to have a formula that works we need to know our crafts and we need to know our our tools and and all the gear that we've been mentioning all so far now it's we really need to know it inside out because we need we are asked to get drum sounds in five minutes it's like can we record drums in five minutes can you get sounds and we all know that ideally it would it would, it would be nice to have like an hour or so <laughs> to get to get or i mean an hour is luxury i can't remember the last time it took me an hour because i it, it doesn't happen uh but we all know that the best drum sounds obviously take a long time or any 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 good sound you know takes a little bit of experimentation, a little bit of unpredictability, but also a little bit of experimentation in terms of like trying different options and things like that. But yeah, I mean, if that if that helps answering the, the, the question, I think that's one of the things that definitely made me, I mean, yeah, also perfectionism, I suppose, like it might be a disease that I have, but. <laughs> yeah, so, so yeah. I mean, can you give me some examples of like your preparation? I mean, this is, this is such an important thing. I mean, this, this, when I talk to people that are like session musicians, I always ask like, well, how do you prepare? And they're like, I'm prepared. Like I walk in and I'm ready for anything and I'm open, you know? So, you know, walk me through a session or give me an example of a session where, you know, how, a, how you prepare and, and, you know, got a drum sound up and got the thing going. I think, I mean, A, it, it does put a lot of pressure on the engineer, but I mean, it's a real craft and a gift to be able to keep the session going. I mean, that is that is Definitely. such a huge thing. And to your point, like now budgets are so small. It's like people want to maximize that time. So walk me through that and like how you prepare and, and what you do to get ready. I, that's a really important point, I think. Yeah. And, and also, I mean, I would say let's, there's, there's a few things that I do personally. Obviously, if it's a studio that I've that I am in for a long time, it's better. Or if it's my studio, or you know, in the case of Mark, uh, we had a few studios. We had a London studio, then we moved to an LA studio. Um, so if it's a situation where I'm in in the studio that I work on a daily basis, it's a little easier because what I do is that as soon as I get into a place, I will start. In a way, you know, like mapping the room, understand what gear we have, what instruments we have, and sort of going obviously before the artist, before the musicians, and kind of like patch everything up, you know, make sure that I have a good starting point where my goal is this. I want to make sure that as by the time somebody has looked at an instrument or, you know, a keyboard or anything, by the time that the that I see and I spot an artist or a musician aiming for that, I have enough time to arm that track on Pro Tools and they can hear it, if that makes sense. Because I think that is really part of the expectations that artists and producers have. With the, with the digital technology and the laptop sort of fashion of doing things, you're expected to just be up and running in a moment. So I try to replicate that in the sort of non-conventional analog scenario where, you know, let's say oftentimes this happened. Um, I spent a lot of time on Electric Lady, for example, in the last few years and 
doing amazing sessions with this artist called Yeba that I love. She's amazing. And, you know, she's got amazing musicians turning up every day. Like, we're talking the best of the best, you know, Questlove, uh, p- people that are, you know, amazing musicians that you obviously want to, you know, satisfy from a sound point of view and make sure that you're ready for it. So if I know that we're in there for a week or so, uh, and, and the, the team there as well is really helpful. You know, the assistants are so spot on. We'll just go in a, a bunch of hours before the session and just mic up everything, start thinking about what are we going to do. You know, obviously I would I would know what the producer or what the artist wants to do and sort of like think about those sounds, think about those techniques and just make a mental list of what I want to do and just go in and, you know, patch it all in, get the desk up and running, get Pro Tools up and running. I have my template where I have all these tracks ready to go. So then then what happens is, and I think that is the biggest thing that an engineer needs to be skilled at today, is that the technology does not, does not get in the way of the music process, the creating process. And I think that's, in a way, like my main goal. You know, not only make stuff sound great and inspire people with sounds, because I think we are responsible for that you know, in terms of our part in the creative process, but it's like making sure that technology is never in the way of the creating process. That's great. Um, talk a little bit about, you know, your relationship with these producers, especially Mark and, and you know, your role. And, you know, there's, there's always sort of the old, um, the expectation that the engineer does his job, the producer communicates with the artist, um, and you know, there are very defined roles in terms of chiming in with your own, um, comments or opinions about the music yeah. and stuff like that. I feel like a lot of that's still true and, and, uh, a respectful way to keep a session moving, honestly, and not derail something. Um, but can you, I was curious if, if that was different with your relationship with Mark, um, and how you navigate that you know, from those early sessions to where you are now with him. I would love to hear your thoughts on that. I've been, at this point, I've been working with Mark for over seven years, I think. So things have obviously changed. But I think the most important thing is that our relationship got to a point where we almost don't need to talk. You know, I know it sounds weird, but like it has developed to such a way where I know exactly what he wants. And throughout you know, all these years when I was, when I was 21 and I just started with him, I was obviously just, just a very excited kid in the room trying, you know, trying to do things in a way with him for the first time. And by now, I think the best skill I have developed, and I think this applies to engineering in general, but specifically with, you know, with Mark working with so many different artists and with so many different projects is that you as an engineer have to pick up on a lot of the psychology between people. You have to read the room constantly. You have to, you know, anticipate um, decision-making, anticipate, uh, you know, necessities, anticipate situations by just understanding what's going to happen. And in terms of, like, strictly my my relationship with Mark, it's to a point where we kind of work together without even talking. Like, I know what he wants. I know what he likes. I know what he's going to say. I know... You know, and again, part of what I was saying before, reading the room and just figuring out what what's next. You know, if I know that Mark has worked a lot, a little bit with the artist on the rhythm, I know at some point he's going to have to want to play bass. He's going to have to lay down a guitar. He's going to have to play a little bit of piano. So making sure I'm all ready for these kind of things. And you know, obviously, there's a there's definitely a great sound aesthetics. There's there's amazing aesthetics with Mark. You know, he's very he's got a very uh, distinctive sound and whether that's a combination of tape, analog, ribbon mics and all these elements, you know, the, it's a very vintage, warm, dusty sound. 
um, there was a lot of work that I put, you know, I put myself to the test throughout the years and sort of like, how can I make it so that I don't need to be told what to do anymore? How can I make it so that I predicted at the best of my capabilities? How can I make it so that really um, Mark asks for something and I have it there ready to go? You know, it's. I think that's 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 the kind of like ping pong job that there is between the producer and the engineer. It's like there's an idea, uh, there's a request, and there's a there's a technical process behind it that gets that gets to the idea that basically realizes the idea or gets to a sound that then gets converted to a oh yeah this could be a different or yeah this doesn't work blah blah blah. So it's it's a constant cooperation that happens almost in a silent way. I hope that makes sense. Oh, I don't know if it's it's, it's a little abstract, I suppose. Well, but. there's no. Um you know, unless you've been in the studio, people will not understand that if you really want to get to know somebody, it's like time is so, um, you know, compacted in a way in terms of the intensity of that time that if you really want to get to know somebody, you just go spend a few days in the recording studio with them. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, there's yeah. just no substitute. So, I mean, it makes sense. And so when you say you've been working with him for seven years, that's, you know, ultimately the you know, probably the, the uh, equivalent of, you know, 14 or 15 years in a normal situation. So, Oh yeah. 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 Um, hundred <laughs> percent, you know, um, how do you, uh, pivot from, from go having that, that specific role as a, as an engineer to being a producer? That's a very interesting question. I think obviously, you know, in, in situation with Mark, um, I'm never, I'm, I'm never the producer. I'm never acting as the producer, obviously, because he's the producer. There's oftentimes other producers in the room. And, and it's, you know, for me, it's like I have enough shit to deal with on my engineering role at that point that I, the last thing I want to do is to start thinking as a producer. But I think the privilege to be in a room with such people taught me a lot um, because, again, I could observe the process. I could see people produce and people just make comments and people, you know, evaluate things. And I could see opinion chain, opinion sharing and things like that. Just, I could see it without having to be part of it. And that, that's always the best school for me. You know, it's like an assistant watching a mixer mix for years. And eventually you're going to start hearing things the way he hear them. He hears them, if it makes sense. Of and so I think when I, when I produced my records and, you know, also I, I've got to say, I think as an engineer nowadays, there's a very thin line between engineering and production in the sense that oftentimes I, I find myself engineering for someone and then I'm actually making a production call without having been put a hat, the producer hat on my head. You know, it just happens. So I feel like it's, it, it, it might be a little, a little less distinct and separate than it used to be maybe some years ago. Um, but nowadays for me, it's like I, I learned so much on the field and I've seen people do it and then it gave me the ability and the confidence to then just naturally approach it in a situation where my opinion is welcome and my, you know, I'm involved in the process from a creative point of view as well. Not to cut off engineering from a creative point of view, because I think engineering is very much creative, especially, you know, mixing. But yeah, I think it, it is all about, I mean, for me, production is, you know, I think nowadays there's a there's an interesting mixed conception that a producer is a guy with a laptop. Um, and only that. And I think, at least from, from, from my point of view, when I grew up, a lot of the producers that I was looking up were not necessarily really good at one thing. They were not like the best beat maker or the best piano player or whatever. They was like, 
they were be able, they were able to morph into all these different you know they were they were they had all these different hats and they were able to morph in all these different abilities and skills and I really look at that as a producer as somebody that can take the artist onto a journey um, you know how however long it's going to be and wherever you're going to go through that journey it doesn't matter that's part of the beauty of it but then you're taking this journey towards the goal of the artist being able to realize their vision helping them find what they really want to say and you know not necessarily read their mind but bring them through a process. It's really abstract again, but I think that's the idea of production for me and I think that is what I really like to do. I'm not necessarily like the guy that comes in and makes a whole track by itself. Um, although at times I'm, I, I'm in the position where I'm doing it, but that's not how I describe my sort of like production choice, if, I, if it makes sense, you know? It can be a very technical job, but you know, you're very much, and this is for mixing too, but you're very much uh, yeah. in control of the the tonal palette of the, uh, and marrying that to the to the way, the emotional, you know, context of the song. I like to think of um, engineering as, um, or in, in a way recording as photograph, and photography in general. Like I think there's a lot in common and, you know, you can start talking about, the concept and the subject of a picture and the location and the landscape, like whatever, you can start talking about all these elements. But ultimately, a big contribution of what that picture is going to look like is all the infrastructure. And I call it infrastructure, but I mean, you know, the camera, the lighting, the way you use your lenses and things like that. And that is still art to me. So that's why I think engineering is a big part of the process. And you're absolutely right in saying it. You are by default, by being in a room and making a commitment on how something is going to sound like, even just, you know, by deciding that, that mic is going to be there, is going to go through that, is going to, you know, have this kind of effects, this reverb, whatever that is, recording or mixing, you're, you're, you're giving a, you know, you're, you're imprinting, you're, you're taking a picture of that in that specific moment in that way. And it could be the most vintage camera or it could be the most brand new 8K, whatever that is, but it's your choice. You know? For sure. And it's a responsibility. Yeah. I, I know you've told this story a thousand times, but can you tell the uh the uptown funk uh story? And I and I asked this because it seemed to change your life. So um It did. And then and then it I was did. watching an interview with you online and uh the little aside was and Neil Young was there. So I gotta know I gotta know why was Neil Young at the Uptown Funk session. No, Neil Young was on the Gaga session. Oh, the Gaga session. I know that's probably that's probably a montage thing. That was like an SAE video, I suppose. It was like a little montage. Yeah. So, I mean, the two stories are the, the quick one is the Neil Young one. We were at Shangri-La Studios, which is Rick Rubin's place in Malibu. Amazing, amazing recording studio. I don't need to say anything about it. it speaks for itself. Um, we were there with Gaga, Mark, <clears throat> and Neil Young was in the bus mixing his live record, which is like, we had the big room, you know, Neil Young, the, the, the god that Neil Young is was in the bus next door because there's a bus converted to studio for whoever doesn't know that. And and yeah, he was just there and he was just chilling and in that that environment is very relaxed and very peaceful and he was just, hey guys, how you doing? You know, chatting with Neil Young. It's like, it's, it's an out of, I don't know, it's an out of body experience a little bit because again, I'm a 22 year old kid in Malibu recording with Mark Ronson and Lady Gaga and all of a sudden <laughs> things that I've been, you know what I mean? Like, yeah. I, I don't know if I need to describe that. It's, it, it is surreal to me as well. And I have been there. And, and I think that relates to the Uptown Funk story. Obviously, the most ridiculous part of it is that it was pretty much one of my first sessions. So as soon as I got 
I mean, it could could have been the first or the second day. Now I can't even remember. But I think one of the first sessions, I wasn't even hired yet. And I was working with Mark on Uptown Funk. Um, and, you know, obviously a song doesn't take a session to make. That song specifically took about seven months from from when it was first recorded, which was way before my time, a couple months before my time, to when we, we sent it for mix. And I entered at a point where the... Um, rhythm section was already recorded. The vocals had been sketched out. Um, and so what we, what I was, you know, at that point doing was recording all the guitars and doing a lot of the, um, you know, engineering all the drum layering. And a lot, a lot of that was very interesting. I mean, without getting too detailed and too geeky about it, but we used a lot of tape and specifically a lot of very speed um, functions where we had this beautiful Studer A A hundred tape machine, which you know, is one of the best machines ever made. And we did spend quite a lot of time, you know, using the kind of trick where you you speed up the song and then you play a tone down and then you bring back the speed to normal. And so every all the fundamentals, all the harmonics uh, are shifted. So things sound thinner or fatter depending on what you're doing. Uh, so we spent a lot of time doing that with guitars. So we we were recording guitars a tone down. So then when brought back to the, to the normal speed, they sounded thinner, kind of like the Prince uh, kiss sound sort of vibe. When it, when you, and it sounds that thin. It's because you're bringing all the, all the fundamentals up and all the, uh, you know, all the harmonics and everything. And then um, in the opposite way, a lot of the, or the Lindrum claps and the Lindrum snare sounds and things like that, we were recording them a tone higher which didn't, make, didn't mean anything in terms of pitch, but obviously when you bring them down, you bring the formants down, uh, it sounds fatter. And then we were running them through like H3000s, AMS, um, you know, RMX-16 delays, like a lot of beautiful dig- like early digital and analog effects and the plate and, you know, a bunch of stuff like that. So that was, that was a big part of it. Um, and then I think we just kept, you know, editing. There's a lot of Pro Tools work in nowadays music production, as everybody knows. So we were chopping stuff, moving stuff around, trying stuff. I think we tried some horns in London, but the real horns were then cut in, in America uh, uh, in another session. And then, yeah, you know, before you know it, the song is out and it's just a banger. It's unbelievable. But I have to, re- I have to say the first time I heard it, I mean, you knew. If, even at whatever state of that, that song it was, you know, even at the beginning when you had the real demo, you knew that that song was going to go places because it just sounded so great it doesn't like that's the the beauty of a great song is that it doesn't matter what what recording you have you have done like what state the song is at you know it's a great song and that's so powerful i think that was that was definitely one of the biggest moment uh, memories of the time yeah yeah you know all of the things that you just talked about in terms of you know using tape and all these techniques uh you know using very speed and all that stuff. I mean, again, it was like your level of preparation because it sounded like you just got absolutely thrown into the fire. Um, oh my God. <laughs> and, you know, I mean, and that's, you know, you, 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 you know, I'm sure there were times where you hadn't felt like you didn't know what you were in over your head, you know? So, yeah. I mean, the real original story actually includes the fact that the studio had been built not long before I started working there. And, because there wasn't really a resident engineer, nobody had really done a thorough test of the whole thing. So I actually walked into a situation where it, there, a lot of stuff was not the way it was supposed to be. I had no meters on the desk because they were broken. Um, some of the patching was wrong. There was a lot of stuff that was patched wrongly or labeled wrongly. 
um, the, we were using also a Scully tape machine, which I had never seen before in my life, obviously, because they're rare. They're rare-ass machines. They're like a one-inch eight-track machine. Beautiful distortion machine, but like, you know, I had never had the chance to use that before. So I did, I was thrown in into a, like, you have to go from zero to 100 in a microsecond. But, you know, I guess it worked out and that's probably what gave me the job. And I think, in a way, luck is where preparation meets opportunity and that was like the right one for me. You know, had I had, I had different interests when I was a kid, it would have turned out very differently, I'm sure. Um, you know, if I wasn't so much into tape or analog or anything like that. Yeah. You know, I mean, and so, you know, what a springboard, right? You've, you've got, you've worked immediately. You work on one of the biggest records over the last day de- in the last decade. Um, yeah. And now you're, you know, you, you're getting called to mix a lot of these projects, some through Mark and, and some on your own um, accord. I mean, you're, you're working again now with, with some of the biggest artists, um, you know, Miley Cyrus and Yeba and, uh, you know, Lady Gaga and, you know, but you're yeah. also working with some other cool artists that, uh, you know, we chatted about earlier, like the Ezra Collective um, yeah. and uh, Masterpiece and, um, you know, Alicia Keys. Um, you know, just going through your 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 Spotify playlist of stuff, I mean, you have a very distinct and extremely modern aesthetic to your mixing. You know, can you can you talk about some of these projects and your approach to them? And mixing has always been a funny one for me because, as much as you know, as I, I'm a really big believer of the ten thousand hours uh, idea, where you need to put ten thousand hours and more to master anything. And then after those 10,000 hours, you know that you're confident at something, but then you know there's so much more that you can do. And mixing was the one that for one reason or another, I never really felt like I put the 10,000 hours. And I only really started properly mixing uh, three years ago, I think. Like actually having the time and having my spot and having, you know, starting to build a routine. Because I think a lot of mixing, a lot of important, um, a good important quality for mixing is having a routine and having your setup. Um, in terms of like, you know, obviously, I think as a mixer, you have a great responsibility at elevating somebody's idea, somebody's emotional content without damaging it for them. I think it's a very delicate process. I think there's a there's two ways of approaching mixing. I think one is kind of the rock and roll way where you get a multitrack, similarly to what you were actually saying before, you get multitrack that and a rough mix that sounds very far from what the end result is going to be. And so you're literally carving in and really going in with your heart. And then you have a situation where you get a beautifully contrasted, uh, constructed multitrack and a song that has been worked on for months and months and months. And it's really sounding amazing. It just needs that little polish. It just needs, it just needs you to do enough that, is, that makes it so it's not too much. Um, and I really like a, I really like to you know kind of make that decision at the beginning of a process. Obviously, the song will speak by itself, but you know I, I think I could bring two examples that are completely different. Like when I mixed the Yeba song "Where Do You Go," uh, the multitracks just sounded beautiful. But then I had confidence and I had you know a good relationship with the artist where I knew where she wanted to go, and so I took a little bit of a creative call in in certain like effects or certain transitions. You know, I could manipulate the mix a little bit more the way I wanted creatively because, you know, we had been record. not only I had been part of the recording process throughout the whole, you know, a year before, but also I have a very strong connection with the artist. So we, you know, we speak a very immediate and quick language in terms of like what she wants and things like that. 
in other situations like, you know, um, other stuff that I would have mixed, uh, where I get something that is already like, it already says everything, then I know that my job is, you know, way less creative, way more like technical, if it makes sense. Um, for, for Masterpiece, for example, I, you know, the stuff was sounding pretty good. It just needed a, a, like a good boost. It's, it's, it's quite funny, the Masterpiece stuff, because it's not a rock and roll production, but it wants to sound like a rock and roll mix. Uh, which which I'm really you know happy about because you know he's great he's he's always very clear on on what he wants to do and he just says yeah just fuck shit up man just fuck shit up and I love it because then that gives me the creative approach that gives me the idea that I can you know push it and do what we all love which is distort the shit out of everything <laughs> um, you know we love to do that as soon as we can do that we we feel good because you get for all the right reasons distortion is good uh, but yeah I mean you know mixing is definitely the thing. Between recording and mixing, I have always preferred recording in a sense that I really like to be in a room with other people and see the magic happen. There's nothing like, you know, being in charge of capturing a moment uh, and you have a band or some musicians in a room making the magic happen. I think that is the best feeling for me. And I have to say, you know, I, I'm, I'm into this industry. I'm in this industry for, for feelings, not really for anything else. Um, and mixing is definitely the thing that I've done the least between the two. So I'm, it's it's always a work in process for me. Pro, work in progress, sorry, for me. I I don't think I have a style. I don't think I have got to a point where I know I'm like, oh, this is Ricky's sound. I'm still really like trying to be the best sound for what whoever I'm working for. If that answers the question, if that makes sense. Absolutely, um, yeah. You know, I appreciate uh, your time and and enjoyed chatting. My pleasure, absolutely. Thanks for listening. Find us online at tapeop.com, Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Until next time. <laughs>